Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Thursday, October 7th, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the usual places. My guest today for our 21st episode of The Hale Report is the economist and eminent writer on all things Japan, Richard Katz. He's an old friend, an early contributor to EconView, and I'm just so happy to have him with us here today to discuss what's going on in the world's third largest economy, which is sometimes frankly ignored in the fireworks of the U.S.-China relationship. Mr. Katz is a prolific and distinguished writer. When I first met him, he was the editor of The Oriental Economist, a publication well known to all historians of modern Asia. I will warn you that he also has a wickedly dry sense of humor. He is senior fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs and New York correspondent for Weekly Toyo Keizai, a leading Japanese business magazine. Mr. Katz has taught about Japan's economy as an adjunct associate professor at the New York University Stern School of Business and as visiting lecturer in economics at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He's the author of two books on Japan's economic travails and has just finished a third on reviving entrepreneurship in Japan. You'll be getting a pre-publication preview on this podcast. Rick, welcome to The Hale Report. Hi, good to be here. Thank you for, for joining us. If you've listened to my other podcasts, you know that I always start out by asking my guests what it was that inspired them to follow their chosen careers. How did you first become interested in economics and in Japan as a student at Columbia or perhaps before? It, it was all a mistake. It was like Christopher Columbus. I set out for one place and found myself in a different place, but it was extremely interesting. I went to Columbia uh, to study history, and it was during the Vietnam War, so of course I was part of the anti-war movement. And being a bit of an academic type, I wanted to take a course on Vietnam but Columbia didn't offer any courses, but they did offer a two-semester sequence, six months on, uh, or, or half a year on China and half on Japan. And the only thing I knew about Japan at that time was that when, my, when I was a kid and my parents bought me a toy and it broke three days later, sure enough, it was made in Japan. But in the course of that course, it turned out to be the most interesting country I had ever encountered. It was up. It was down. His history was so dramatic. This was also at the time, it was, of course, the time of the Vietnam War, and Japan was, along with Thailand, one of the only two countries in Asia which escaped being colonized by the imperialist powers. So that made it interesting in the course of the war. Also, the U.S.-Japan trade frictions were heating up, and that made it very, very interesting. So I just got really, really intrigued with Japan and then started doing freelance journalism about U.S.-Japan trade issues and sort of sort of fell into it. Well, we're, we're glad that you did, and all, all students of Japan are. Um, we're going to be talking about your upcoming book, but I know our listeners are also interested in the current political landscape in Japan. 
There's new leadership. Prime Minister Kishida has just assumed um, assumed his post, um, or as I guess uh, our president calls him, Fumio. Uh, what do you think about Kishida as the new prime minister? Is this the end of an era, a beginning of a new era, or just the same old, same old in Japanese politics? Yeah, this is really a disappointment um, in lots of ways. First of all, the LDP, the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, which has been in power almost continuously for, what, six decades now, almost seven decades, um, had a chance for generational change. They decided not to. They do not face a really a vibrant opposition, so they uh, believe they can foist on the public whoever they want, and they won't lose the election. They'll just have low turnout and they'll win with the minority of the votes. Um, there, under Shinzo Abe, there was a huge gap between rhetoric and reality, and Kishida has addressed this issue not by upping the reality, but by downgrading the rhetoric. So he's not even offering as much as Shinzo Abe offered, but then didn't didn't deliver. So I think it's Japan muddling along. I don't think we're going to see a lot of uh, dramatic things coming out of, out of him, which means that some of the festering problems, for example, an economy which is still in very, very rough shape will continue to show very low growth. As a result, some of the corrosive problems in Japan are going to continue to, to corrode or infester. The economy has been suffering from low growth. He really has no strategy to revive growth. The aging problem remains. They don't have a way to deal with that. Climate change, I think he will be, uh, unfortunately, a downgrade from his predecessor, Suga, who was very serious about Japan combating climate change and was really, really ready to have a tussle with the bureaucracy, METI in particular, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the big business federation, KDON, which oppose aggressive action. I think Kishida will go along with them, so we'll have some backsliding there. So it really is a very, it is a very disappointing outcome. There's kind of a dynasties of, of politics in Japan. I think he's third generation politician. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I think it is among the rich countries, it is the country with the greatest proportion of members of the diet and heads of state who are the children or grandchildren or nephews or sons-in-law of, of previous uh, diet members and prime ministers. Mm -hmm. Well, I've had the privilege of taking a peek at the manuscript for your new book. And in spite of your pessimistic view of <laughs> current politics, your book is really optimistic about Japan. And it, Japan's been in a slow growth funk for some time. You think this time will be different. Why is that? It's, it looks like it's not political leadership. We've been fooled before. Rick, convince me that things are going to change. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to say, you know, uh, I've been unfairly tagged as a pessimist all these years by saying, you know, three swallows do not a spring make. And I went back and looked at something, my first book I wrote in 1998, and when I said, when people thought Japan was just going through a rough patch, we recovered quite quickly. And I said they needed structural reform. It would certainly not happen uh, a revival earlier than five years, but it almost certainly will not take longer than 20 years. Now it's, it's 23 years. So I remain an optimist in the long term. Um, 
The reason why I think there is potential this time for the first time in a generation, there's no guarantees, of course, is that there is a quiet societal revolution going on in all kinds of spheres. There's a generational change, which has made big, big changes in, in attitudes about all sorts of things that affect the economy. There's a technological change, which Japan's big corporate giants are really unable to respond to very well and has weakened them. So, for example, Sony. Sony used to have one must-have product after another. Where is the globally competitive Sony smartphone or e-reader or tablet or any of these devices or even a PC? It doesn't exist. And so, believe it or not, uh, the top 10 Japanese hardware manufacturers of electronics in a time of exploding global sales of electronics devices Every single one of them has had falling sales for the last 15 years. I mean, that is really quite remarkable. And the entire Japanese electronics industry has fallen in terms of the global sales. So while these former superstars are getting weaker, you have a whole slew of new entrepreneurial companies arising. I just looked up the data. Uh, there are about 55 billionaires in Japan, most of whom whom either are very old men who had founded companies way back when, or are the descendants of people who founded them way back when. But one out of every five of them is a new entrepreneur that has formed a company in the last 20 years or 25 years. Almost all of them are involved in using digital technology to improve productivity in traditional services. It could be something as simple as the expense reports that small companies have to fill out, or finding a lawyer, or getting consultation online for a lawyer, or for small businesses to have an e-signature rather than that, that stamp that's called the honko in Japan. It's all kinds of things, uh, finding new jobs. And so there's a younger generation which is familiar with this technology, knows this technology, knows how to turn this technology into vibrant technologies. There is change in gender relations. You walk into one of these newer companies and you see something that you almost never see at the traditional firms, which is lots of women managers. That's something that most people would under think is happening in Japan today. Yeah, well, they would be wrong. Mm -hmm. This is another case where there are promises. Um, a few years ago, a Japanese prime minister promised that by 2030, 20% of all the managers would be uh, women. Uh, that prime minister was not Abe. That prime minister was Koizumi back in 2003. Abe just repeated Koizumi's promise and then said, we can't do it, so we're now we're going to make it 2030. So it's, it's always five years or 10 years from wherever we are now. But because they are denied, these very talented, ambitious women are denied opportunities at the traditional companies, they flock to these new companies, and that solves the problem for them. Their problem, one of their biggest problems, is finding really talented staff. And so here you have these women who have experience at big companies, younger people who want to get in on the ground floor, people who are in their say 45 to 50, who are bored with their job at a big company, and they say they want to finally do something interesting. This is their last chance in their life to do something interesting with their career, and they live the big, leave the big company, go to the startup, help build it, help get it off the ground. There's this remarkable change in, in attitudes, and companies are having to adjust to it. They're having to do 
hire people in mid-career, which they didn't used to want to do. Um, they, so there's all sorts of, the, the globalization. Most of these, these new entrepreneurs, they have global experience. They be, some were born in the US or Canada. Many of them went to school at Stanford or MIT or other places, or their fathers had worked abroad, and so they had experience working abroad, or they have mentors who've done that. The amount of, so globalization, it's a, has a much, much less influence in Japan than it needs to be. But these are all great trends. The, there are only two things missing for this to reach critical mass, and they will not reach critical mass without them. One is the financial system, which is really, really problematic. And the second thing is politics. And even in politics, there are stresses which open up the possibility of change. Well, you talk about Rakuten, which is a, a company that uh, many of us would know. Would you like to talk about them a little bit? I think that's the kind of company that you were describing. Sure. The head of it, Mikutani, he created this thing. Um, he was 32 years old. His father had taught at Yale. He was a Harvard MBA. He has people speak English. There are 40,000 small and medium companies which found it hard to reach customers because the Japanese had this traditional distribution system of a maze of wholesalers and retailers. And if you were not part of the old boys club, it was hard to get your products to the customer. Now with e-commerce, there are 40,000 of these small and medium companies that sell billions and billions of dollars worth of stuff. One of these companies was a furniture company, they're a furniture retailer. The founder did not believe in e-commerce. He refused to go on, on the web. Their sales never went above $1 million. When he passed from the scene, his children took over the company, immediately went on the internet malls. And within only 16 years, they increased their sales from $1 million a year to $160 million a year. They're one of Rakuten's top retailers. Now, Rakuten in turn has spawned a lot of its employees. They encourage them to go out after a while and create their own companies. And one of the, one of the, ment one of the protégés of Mikitani just became Japan's newest billionaire. And he created a company which allows people who are searching for new jobs, people who earn at least $60,000 a year are full-time workers, they have talent, there are 1.2 million of these workers who are registered right now. This doesn't count the ones who were registered years ago and got a job. But they, but they have, are now looking for jobs, and there are 17,000 companies out to hire them. This never would have had in the past, so it's a marriage of changing generational attitudes with new technology that revolutionizes old things like, how do you find a job? And Rakuten spawns all sorts of companies. Okay, this guy's a billionaire, but there are a lot of people who are mere millionaires, you know, who are doing quite well. In your book, you uh, have a designation of companies, keystone companies, that I had never heard before. What are keystone companies? How are they different from unicorns? Okay, a unicorn company is a very famous term. All it means is a private company that's been funded by venture capital. It's not yet on the stock market, so that's why it's called a private company that investors value at at least a billion dollars and expect when it does go on the stock market, it'd be a billion dollars. Everybody uses this term. Keystone company is a term I invented, and I took it from the 
well-known term called a keystone species. A keystone species is a species in nature, which if you remove it from an ecosystem, the entire ecosystem collapses. So in Yellowstone Park, they removed the wolves from Yellowstone Park about 80 years ago. And what happened was, because the wolves weren't there, the, el the elk and the, and the deer grew like wildfire. They started eating all the leaves off of the trees. The trees started dying. And therefore, there were no roots to hold the water in. You got soil erosion. And, and just one thing, the beavers disappeared. The entire ecosystem, just the, the fish were gone. They reintroduced the, the uh, wolves, I think it was 1995, and suddenly the population became into balance. The trees came back. The soil erosion was reversed because now there were roots. The beavers came back and the fish came. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. So new companies are a keystone species for the economy. A healthy economy needs a mix of old companies that have experience, they have size, they've got deep pockets, but they've grown up with certain ideas. And particularly in Japan, they hire new people with the same ideas. And so they, even if they try to adapt to a new environment like Sony, they, 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 they can't do it well. Sony tried to develop a, a, a smartphone and these other things and couldn't do it. But these new companies, they have fresh thinking, fresh ideas. They are the conveyor belt for new ideas. And one of the new trends, this is particularly too, true in the digital age, where a lot of smaller companies can do R&D, we're now seeing a partnership between big companies and these newer companies. For example, the Pfizer vaccine. Pfizer did not invent the Pfizer vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine was invented for Pfizer by a startup in Germany that was founded by a married couple who are immigrants from Turkey. Is that a great story of globalization or is that a great story? Gmail was not invented by Google. It was invented by a smaller company for Google. The same thing with Alexa, same thing with other things of this type. And so the keys, without new fresh companies with fresh blood that have that dynamism, dynamism, new ideas, the economy becomes rigid, it becomes ossified, it slows down. Problem with Japan is too many old, stodgy, decades-old firms that have kind of lost their mojo. They're good companies, but they're no longer superb companies. They don't drive innovation. Too many of those and not enough new keystone companies, and, and you need a balance. Too much of either one is a problem. Do you think that one of the reasons for the stagnation in, in Japanese corporations, the large corporations we all know, is because of the overhang of government ownership? Most people don't realize that on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, the biggest um, shareholder of all is, investor of all, is the Bank of Japan. Um, I think we're maybe attaining that same status in the United States now with, with quantitative easing, which the Japanese invented as well. But the, the Bank of Japan is the major majority shareholder without voting rights of most Japanese companies. Is that part of the reason that you see that stagnation? No, it's not a cause of it. It's a symptom of it. By the way, okay. the Fed, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, the Fed is not buying stocks of companes. No. The Fed is buying treasury bills and things exactly. like that. It's a very different exactly. situation. This is not monetary easing. This is the Bank of Japan using its money to prop, prop up the stock prices of 
Japanese companies. It's a bailout of Japanese companies. So it's, it is, it is, yeah, it makes it worse, but it, it didn't cause it in the first place. It's a response to the problems they're having and how it's reflected in the stock market. It was a way of attracting foreign money. It was a make, way, a political gesture to make Japan look better and helped, helped Abe in the polls. Um, and so it doesn't really do the economy much good, but it, it is a reflection of the, uh, the, the lack of imagination of how you really solve these, these economic problems. But it's not yes. the cause of the problems it's in the first the place. Cause. So I'm just looking at the, you know, the unusual characteristics of the financial landscape in Japan. And you wrote a piece in Toyokesai this, I think, this summer that got a lot of attention. I thought that was shocking that Japan's ranking in terms of foreign direct investment was it just before or just after North Korea? Number one seventy six. Just, just so North Korea has more foreign direct investment than Japan. That's right. astounding. This is this. I was shocked when I saw it. I thought it would be low, but not that low. This is the ratio: the total amount of foreign direct investment accumulated over the years as a ratio to GDP. Now, just in case some people in the audience don't know what we mean by that, for uh, if you if a foreigner. If, buys your stock in your company, that's not direct investment. That's called indirect investment. Direct investment is when a foreign company sets up its own operations. Uh, say an American company sets up an operation in Japan or a Japanese company creates a factory for automobiles here. It's when a foreign company buys a, a, a domestic company. So Bridgestone buys Firestone or an American company would buy Renault, really bought out Nissan for a while. Um, so that's direct investment. And that the reason we care about that is that this foreign direct investment, particularly for a country which is behind the global benchmarks and productivity and efficiency of how well it uses its resources, it really brings in, again, new ideas, fresh ways of thinking, different ways of thinking. It's not just money. It's not just it's not about money. Mm -hmm. So for example, until the Japanese transplants came to the United States, Detroit people thought, the big three thought, it's better to let defects happen and not stop the assembly line and we'll fix them later, or worse yet, not fix them later and hope the customers won't mind. Whereas once the, and, and they didn't believe when the Japanese said we do it differently, we prevent them in the first place, we're willing to stop the assembly line that they didn't realize, in fact, you make more money doing that way because you have fewer defects because customers like it better. And so it, it works in both directions. We benefit from Japanese investment here. Japan would benefit from more foreign investment there. The problem there is 80% of foreign direct investment is really mergers, companies buying other companies. And in Japan, the most attractive companies, they're not for sale for all kinds of historic reasons. Not cultural reasons, but political and business reasons. Right. So what could be, if, if those are things holding Japan back, um, and if it's also, I'm assuming it's not easy for some of these, these Keystone companies as they're starting out to get financing, I'm yes. imagining that is getting the people, getting the financing, those are all limits on growth. Where are the opportunities? Um, you wrote about uh, in Foreign Affairs recently about Japan's pivot away from coal. Is net zero a, a place for Japan to to exert leadership 
globally? Okay, these are two different questions, but let me do yes, one at a time. Yes, they are. Okay. Okay, okay. Um, the banking system in Japan is extremely problematic. And one of the things that's most problematic is it doesn't lend to the people who need the money. It's actually used partly as a financing vehicle, but it's also used as almost a disguised welfare vehicle. So many of the loans go to people who retired from their so-called lifetime job at age 55 or 60, and then set up a mom and pop shop, and a lot of bank loans go to them. They, they, and the government will guarantee these loans for a fee, and they have the highest rate of government guaranteed loans, whatever. But for a new company or somebody under 30 to get a loan, is very, very hard. Now, it's somewhat hard in, in other countries, too. But the IMF and other people have done studies, and it is far, far harder in Japan than elsewhere. Now, some of these people, like Rakuten, is, are trying to set up, in fact, their own banks, in a way, and drive funds. Venture capital is very limited in Japan. But, you know, venture capital is only a very, very thin slice of, of the funding for new entrepreneurial companies. For example, in America, the total number of high-tech firms in Silicon Valley is 2,000. But there's a group of companies that are nicknamed gazelles, which is a variety of, of antelope in Africa, very fast-running. And these countries, companies grow fast, so they're nicknamed gazelles in the official literature. I did not invent that. I wish I had. Um, but the guy named David Birch did. But what happens is they grow very fast, and there's a definition of them. And they, and they innovate, and they really drive a lot of the dynamism in the economy. There are 55,000 of them in America, compared to 2,000 in Silicon Valley of the venture capital type, type companies. We don't know how many there are in Japan because the government won't measure them. So anyway, those things are necessary. They do need financing, and because if they don't get the financing, they start off too small. And if you start off too small, you're never going to get big. So that is a key thing. And, and dealing with that is really a matter of, that's where politics needs to come in to really do something with the financial system. Uh, on the second question about global, about coal, <clears throat> this is one of the things that is, is very, very disappointing. The, the strategy document that the government just put out for their energy strategy through the year 2030 is not to phase out coal, but to keep it going through carbon capture and other dreams that people have, which, you know, are just not going to come through in any scale by that time frame. Uh, and so they're really not moving away. The banks are refusing to finance new coal plants, and that's good, although they continue to finance existing ones in Japan and overseas. They're still building new coal plants in Japan. I think if Kono had won the prime ministership, then Japan would be moving to phase out coal. Kishida, no, they're going to keep coal. And one thing that Kishida should be doing, which I don't know that he will, is you know he says he wants to stimulate the economy because of COVID. Well, one good stimulus is Japan is going to have tons of floods because of climate change. It's already begun. They do not have the, the sewage systems and the storage areas. They have these huge caverns to absorb water in Tokyo, for example, through the sewer system of floods come. They're not big enough for the floods that are now coming. And, and that'd be a very worthwhile thing to spend money on because the property destruction and that what that will mean for the supply chain, we see how the supply chain has been hurt by COVID. 
climate change is going to make this, uh, the supply chain damage of COVID look like nothing. And the government should be spending lots of money on mitigating the effects of instead the of change. bridges to nowhere or yeah roads. Bridges, yes yeah right yes. exactly water storage for for somewhere or else you're going to get backups all sorts of things yes so, but Japan has a lot of debt doesn't it already where are they going to get the fiscal space for this will would could covid give them an opening to do that well, politically, it might if they if mm-hmm. the if the uh, people in charge decide to use it for that. But there is not a fiscal problem in the way that people think. First of all, the bank. What really matters for your debt level is the amount of your debt that's being held by private investors, not by the government itself. And what's happened is the Bank of Japan has bought so many Japan government bonds that the actual amount of debt held by private investors has actually gone way, way down in the last decade. So if we didn't have a debt explosion 10 years ago, we're even less likely to have it now. This is the time with low interest rates to borrow more and spend it on things that will improve the growth potential of the economy. What matters for preventing a debt explosion without getting into technicalities is basically you want the growth rate of the economy to be higher than the interest rate on debt. And right, if you so you can that, service it. Mm-hmm. You can service it. If you manage mm-hmm. that, then, then it's stable and you're fine. So if, just like a company, a company that borrows to invest wisely is a lot better off than a company that won't borrow at all, right? If, right. if, if it's borrowing for things that, that, that earn the profits to repay the interest, that's a good thing. So Japan should be doing that. They really do not have a fiscal problem. And, and moreover, the only the you know the Ministry of Finance was telling scare stories about the euro debt crisis. The lots of company, countries, lots of countries in Europe had big debts, but the only ones that got into trouble were those that had both a big domestic budget debt and a foreign debt on the trade deficit or on the, what's called the current account. Unless you had to have both debts, if you only had one of them, you were fine. Right. JGBs are primarily owned by, not by foreign investors. No, the J- JGBs, that is Japan government bonds, are primarily owned by, I think it's 95% or so by the domestic investors. There's a lot of trading in them by foreign investors, but mostly they're owned by, by, by Japanese domestic investors who are not about to sell them in the panic. Right. Well, actually, treasuries have a greater foreign ownership but we're also the reserve currency of the world. So. Yeah, so I'm not worried about the church. No, the, yeah, the idea that someone's going to blackmail us and say, you know, we're going we're gonna to withdraw our money from treasury, it's like saying, hi, you better do this or I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. In the foot, exactly. People don't realize that would cause an immediate fall, just as if any of the billionaires sold immediately all of their shares in a company, they wouldn't be worth the present market value. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. People don't sort of sort of get that. Well, what is what has happened because of COVID in Japan? Do you see any changes that you think are durable changes in terms of productivity? I mean, my memory always is of Japan being far behind in terms of adoption of any kind of um, uh, of IT apparatus, and people still sending fax to each other, for example, and not adopting new methods of communication, but is, is, is there anything that's been done that you think because of COVID that will increase productivity? 
See, I'm afraid not. And this is, you know, again, why I get unfairly tagged as a pessimist. Just because things aren't happening now doesn't mean they won't happen forever. In fact, them not happening now puts political stresses on the system to which eventually they need, they need to respond. I don't think the opposition will always remain feckless. But anyway, that aside, no, I don't see anything. You know, the problem with Japan is with technology, the issue isn't not how much do you spend on the technology, but what benefit do you get from having spent that money? Japan spends a lot of money on technology, but in the world ranking of how much benefit do companies get from the money they spend, it comes in 56th. Why is, is it so shameful. inefficient? Why is that? Well, this is because companies are still run by people who grew up in the analog era, the pre-digital era, and they're thinking that way. So, for example, what do they think digital technology is for? What they think it's for is doing the same tasks you were always doing, just automating them in order to cut costs. The whole point about digital technology is it allows you to do things you could never do before. One of my favorite examples of a very simple example of this, I was told by a guy who lives in Japan, he's from Finland, you know, in a small grocery store, the idea of putting beer and pampers together seems like a horrible idea. I mean, babies and alcohol, you can't do that. But when they began to apply the digital technology to the checkout counter, so they had inventory control and see what people are buying and you know, all these correlations, and it's called big data, gathering lots and lots of data on customer behavior. They found that on a Friday night, the same people who bought lots of beer also bought lots of pampers. And what it was was newlyweds who couldn't go out would turn on the you know, screen a movie, or in those days put a VCR in the machine, and drink their beer and watch the kid. And so what they did because of that information, which they never could have gotten before to any cost, they then put the beer and the pampers together near the checkout counter and sales went way up. Now, the Nissan Leaf, which is one th which happened under Carlos Ghosn, by the way, um, a foreign investor in Japan, a foreign executive, right? We had a fresh idea, a different way of thinking. The Nissan Leaf has got a sensor. Now, it's very expensive when a parcel delivery truck or a vehicle breaks down. UPS has the same system. It's very expensive. There's a sensor. And when, when it's, a part is about to break down, the temperature rises in the, in the engine area, there's certain stress things that happen. There's all kinds of things that can sense. It may not even know which part is going to go, but it knows something's going to go. And what they do is they monitor all that, and then they go out and they, and they send a, a message to the driver, whether it's a passenger car, the Nissan Leaf, or, or the headquarters in the UPS truck, send out a new car before it breaks down, or go to the shop before it breaks down, you're not stuck. And so this is whole new ways of using things to develop new products, new ideas. Uh, they develop different types of detergents using this kind of stuff. And so the Japanese companies have really not used it to, to create new tasks, new ideas, new products, new ways of doing things. It's just automating the same old things they were doing before to cut costs. And that may cut the cost, but it doesn't improve the top line. It doesn't improve sales. And therefore, in the long run, does not improve the bottom line either. Uh, and and so you, that's why you need generational change, company change for people who, who will see opportunities, who will see problems that other people just, they don't see it because they're used to looking a certain way.
Right. You know, uh, uh, that reminded you what you said about your, your toy breaking and it was made in Japan. Um, I'm old enough to remember when people and company, American companies were quite worried about intellectual property theft from Japan and copying. Japan was supposed to be copying. Now that same thing is true, in, but for China. Um, what is the, for, for new innovation in Japan, what is the regulatory environment that protects intellectual property that is created by these smaller companies? Uh, I, I think what happens usually is once a country begins to develop its own innovations, then it develops the regulatory framework to protect that, but it doesn't protect foreign intellectual property. But is there anything unique no, I about think, Japan? I think no, I think that's not a problem in Japan. I, mm -hmm. I think the intellectual property situation is, is, is really quite good. Um, you know, there are always rumors about this or that. You know, I mean, for example, Amazon is accused of stealing technology from the companies that sell on its platform. And there are all kinds of investigations going on of that. So you have that sort of stuff. Um, and you have people who, who monitor that. I think the th only thing there is the question of the strength of the regulatory uh, agencies to have enough staff to investigate these things, which again, we have here. I mean, we, we've cut the staff of the uh, SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, to investigate white collar crime, for example or in the Justice Department. Uh, we've cut auditing in the IRS, and that's true in, in Japan as well. But as far as the intellectual property regime, I, I think what you said is correct. As you develop intellectual property, you develop the regime. I met uh, in Chongqing a, a Chinese entrepreneur, a former engineer at a state-owned enterprise who'd built up his own uh, a little gadget for the carburetor and motorcycles. His ambition was to become the fifth largest company in the world to major auto companies to supply this gadget. And I said, well, what's the biggest obstacle in your way? He said, intellectual property theft by my Chinese rivals. Mm -hmm. He said, and until China becomes a country with rule of law, we'll never really properly modernize. So as you say, as people begin to develop the intellectual property, then there comes the demand that, in fact, it be protected. And what about taxation as well? Is there, I have no idea, what is the taxation regime in, in Japan today? Does it help or hinder these new companies? So this is one of my favorite stories. See, this is the gap between re, you know, reality and rhetoric, right? So what we know is that a couple decades ago, most R&D was done by companies with at least 25,000 employees. They did 70% of the R&D. Now in the US, they do about 30% of the R&D. And the companies with fewer than 1,000 do, I forget the exact number, but they do a lot. And even companies with less than 100 do a lot. Now Japan is the exception for this, from, from this trend. It's a global trend, it's true in Europe as well. Computers have allowed, have made, uh, made uh, doing R&D much less costly. So. The way that you, all countries subsidize R&D, but who does, you can subsidize it either through direct financial subsidies, which a lot of countries do, or through tax credits. But if you're a new company and you're not earning profits yet, by definition, because you're a new company, you don't benefit from the tax credit. So they have what's called a carry forward where it says, well, when you finally earn profits in five or 10 or 15 or 20 years, all these credits you built up 
then you can use them and an investor will, not, will reap the benefits. Well, Japan doesn't do that. So 92% of the government subsidy for R&D goes to the largest companies who are just profitable, got cash, cash like overflowing the electronic vaults of the banks. They don't need the money. So if the government was serious about trying to fix this, they would change these tax laws. Now, I'll tell you, I had no officials who've been working their butts off in Japan to fix these things. Some of the most radical reformers in Japan are these, these bureaucrats who are slammed. But then they run into a fight with the bureaucrats of the finance ministry who are saying, gee, we can't afford to lose the tax revenue, which to my way of thinking is penny-wise, pound-foolish, because if you did that and the country grew more, you, the tax base would be so much bigger. So yeah, this is something very simple that could be done. Um, this fellow I'm talking about, he did something else. They don't have enough angels in Japan. Talking about finance. Um, and so Britain has a very good law to incentivize angels to finance these new companies. He tried to copy that law. He got it through the diet, but the finance ministry, you know, watered it down. So these are fights that will continue, but at least there are these fights. 20 years ago, there wouldn't have even have been the fight to change things. And that's why the long-term optimism on there, because there are people who are take their job to save the nation seriously and there are more of them than there used to be. So now I'm going to look at R&D from another angle. Um, as, as you know, a lot of the things that we've been talking about, the Internet and so forth, came about as a result of uh, R&D by the government and primarily for defense, military, space exploration. All of those things created a lot of benefits, and they were based upon a lot of military expenditure. So looking at geopolitics today, is Japan going to have a bigger role in its own defense and in the defense of its region? Will the budget increase and will this have spillover effects? In other words, up to this point, Japan's innovations have mostly been about on the consumer level, right? But for this more fundamental research, do you think that a bigger defense budget is the way that these things actually happen, not through private companies? Um, you know, uh, I have a different viewpoint on that. Okay. I think your description of the U.S. situation is, is correct. I, I agree with that. Uh, Japan has done a lot of innovation, not only on the consumer side, but also the business-to-business -business side. We think about, you know, Japan invented the Walkman, the transistor radio, et cetera, but they also developed the super tanker, they were among the first to adopt solid-state uh, TVs, uh, electric art, continuous casting and steel, all sorts of stuff. The problem Japan has is not on the level of developing patents and developing technology. They're super in developing technology. The problem is turning that, that technology into products that people actually want to buy. For example, the commercialization is like the commercialization. For Why, a, remote, a remote control, if, if an engineer is in charge of it, he thinks, well, the more you can really get precisely the TV to look exactly like you want it to look, that that's a better product. And the customer says, too many buttons. I can't figure it out. Just, just do it yourself. 
And so they want three buttons. They don't want 1,600 buttons. And so if you've got engineers without a marketing person saying, wait a minute, what is the, for a, a market economy, the best technology is not the technology that the engineer thinks the, is the best. It's the technology that, that the consumer will end up thinking is the best, the most user-friendly, can get the job done. Now, may, smart engineers figure out how to meet that consumer desire. But it's, it's, they have a different criteria. And so it's not that Sony couldn't invent stuff. It invented all kinds of stuff. But they were unable to turn it into technologies that people wanted. I know of a Japanese publication that did a focus group of having its readers use Amazon Kindle with Japanese kanji characters and Sony's e-reader with kanji characters to, to download articles and books and whatever. And what happened was the Japanese customers preferred Amazon. That Why? Sony could not develop a product that the Japanese customer found user-friendly because they were stuck in this old analog era of how to do things. Partly, there's a sociological reason for this. Partly, it's, it's that people hire at their lifetime employment, they hire people who think like they think, as opposed to hiring people who are going to say, no, what you think is now obsolete, we got to move on. But the other reason is that if you're a company that's used to doing everything yourself, you're very, very uh, close-minded. Not close-minded, you have narrow tunnel vision. The thing about software, not in games, but other kinds of software, is that you always have to work with other companies. It's a very collaborative industry. And so all kinds of companies in the US are working with other companies all of the time, and therefore getting fresh ideas and interchange and what works and wasn't worked. And so if you're used to doing everything yourself and you try to apply that mode to these digital products, it's not gonna work. And so the Japanese, you look in, in video games, they're on top of the world because that's exactly. not an industry that requires that interaction among companies. But when you're talking about an e-reader, a smartphone, or things that require this interaction, it's a social, it's a sociological problem because of the way people are trained, how companies hire people, how they promote them, all sorts of stuff of, along that line. All of these things are changeable. That's the good news. This is not some deep-seated cultural, cultural artifact. Mm. It is not cultural. Because it's they used generational, to be generational though. It's a generational attitude and the way people were promoted. All of these things are eminently changeable. So you're really optimistic um, over the trend. And I understand the reasons why. What issue, other than the politics, um, what are the issues that worry you right now about Japan? Is there something that's gnawing at you that you think this could be the thing that keeps them from attaining what they with their capacity? Well, number one is politics. Number two is the financial system. And number three is, is, is climate change. And as part of climate change, for reasons that truly bewilder me, the government has not seemed to be able to get its act together to deal with emergency situations. All kinds of private companies in Japan were doing all sorts of things. And I'm not one of those people who thinks the government can never do anything good. You know, but in Japan, I mean, they responded so poorly to the COVID 
even though the prime minister, who was supposed to be able to scare the hell out of bureaucrats, couldn't get the Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare to, to ram these tests through, approve things that had been experimented on people who were genetically Japanese in other countries, and get these vaccines out of the way. Had he done so, he might still be prime minister. But he didn't. Um, and so there are all kinds of disasters that are going to happen because of, of climate change. And I don't think they're prepared to deal with them. And finally, there's the aging problem. You know, you've got all kinds of towns. There are two ways in which I see this. One is, and my daughter was an English teacher in Japan for a couple of years recently, uh, in what they probably called JET, in a rural area. The school she was in was built for 500 students and had 150. And there are these towns like this all over Japan, and some of them, they're not even big enough to support a grocery store anymore, so the grocery store shuts down. How are they going to get their groceries? This smart community, community organizer, 42 years old, decided, I'm going to take a bunch of trucks, vans, turn them into stores, mobile stores, with, with, packed with 1,500 items. And he would drive from town to town and then hire other drivers to do the same. And then they would go and park there, and people would come to this mobile truck. And the reason you knew it was a Japanese company, because if one of the oldsters that who's a regular didn't come, they would call the authorities, hey, make sure that person's not sick. So that's, <laughs> that's how you knew that's, that's how you knew you, that you're in Japan, <laughs> that people take care of each other. Now, the supermarkets never thought of this idea. But once this guy thought of it, they teamed up with him. He's now got 1,500 trucks, in every, one in every, at least some one in every prefecture. He wants to have 5,000 in a few years. He's making lots of money, God bless him. And these old people are getting things. Well, that's, oh, that's one issue. But they're not taking care of that. The, the other problem is that there are these company, tens of thousands of companies where the, the person in charge is 65, 70, 75 years old. They can't get a successor partly because of obstacles in the financial regime and partly because children no longer want to work necessarily for the family company. So they're holding on. Over the next five, 10 years, so many are going to either retire or die that there are several hundred thousand companies that are in danger, profitable, good companies, that are in danger of just closing down at the cost of several million jobs. And these are big, big social things that the government is really not prepared to deal with. And so I think it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's really bad news they're not prepared to deal with it, and that's very bad for Japan. On the other hand, they're not dealing with it is one of the reasons it will become more and more manifest that you got to throw the bums out and get a, a, a new group of people in there. And one party system just does not, does not work. And so the, the lack of doing things is creating stresses in the political system. I don't think that's a sustainable, sustainable system. The LDP stays in power, not because people like it so much, but because turnout gets lower and lower and lower. And they're finding a way to stay in power with minority votes. So Rick, as I understand your views then, you see a, a huge number, the challenges that we've all seen for a long time, po the politics, the financial system, um, the demographic trends and now climate change, all of those are still there, but you believe that there are also opportunities 
and that there is a lot of creativity, innovation, especially as um, the new generation, um, even if there are fewer of them, that the new generation is capable of making those kinds of meeting those challenges and maybe coming up with solutions, not just for Japan, but for the rest of the world. So is that a fair summary of, of how you're looking at it? And, and that some of these keystone companies, as you call them, keystone companies for the world actually could be companies we don't even know about yet, haven't heard about, but they are in Japan. Or or they will be. Some of them have, have not been invented yet because the guy who's going to create him is only 15 and he won't do it till he's 23. Or the girl. But, um, you out know, of the was... 11, out of these 11 new billionaires in Japan, yeah. one, one is a woman. I believe she's the second female self made billionaire who's an entrepreneur. The other one's now 86. That reminds me of our mutual friend, Devin Stewart, who did yeah. so much work in this area. Um, he was a wonderful, wonderful researcher, and, and uh, we miss him. And a good but, guy. And a very, very good guy. But uh, yeah. so many more things to, to study. And also, I was thinking of Nick Bennis as well. Um, yeah. When you were talking about the corporate structure and the things that needed to be done in the financial system. So, um, Rick, when will we be able to read your new book and how can we follow you? How can people who've been listening to you um, find more of what you have to say? Well, the book will be out when uh, I have an agent who's now introducing it to publishers. So when we get a publisher who wants to buy it, I'll let you know. Thank you. Uh, We'll have you back. (laughs) Okay, very good. When when it's done. Uh, Yes. I had a website um, which is now defunct. uh, But anyway, I will get some sort of a blog site and and I'll I'll let you know about that. I've been encouraging you to get a substack. Okay, so well, if, if that you may do. be my first step. I'll get a Substack, <laughs> at least as an at least as an interim thing. I'll get that, and so we'll have stuff. And if I switch, then we'll know. Yeah, and I'll also post on uh, under your profile on EconView. I'll post some of your recent articles as well, and of course this podcast and a transcript because I right. think people would be very very interested in reading this. Japan, as I said, it's people forget it's the third largest economy in the world. And the partnership between Japan and the U.S. and Australia and the region, I think what is going to be growing significantly over the next few years because of the perceived threat from China. Sure, sure. Yes. And, uh, and I find the country endlessly fascinating because it's always in transition. And countries right. in transition are, are interesting. Well, so. you and I both got the bug at a very early yes, age, yes, and now your yes. daughter has it too. Yes. <laughs> and my kids. So, <laughs> so we're creating our own dynasties, maybe. That's right. That's right. And hopefully they can all meet each other at some point. That, that would, would be, be fun. Yeah. Rick, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I think there's nobody better on these subjects than you are, and i look forward to welcoming you again when your book comes out. Great. So. Yeah. So thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to the people behind the scenes as well who make EconView possible. Managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. 